chapter 18, verses 1 through 22, and that'll be page 855 in your pew Bible. Would you stand with us as we begin our service in opening prayer? George, may I prevail upon you to lead us in prayer? Thank you. 
your brown hymnal this morning and turn to number 588, 588 in the brown. <clears throat> favorite hymns this morning? Yes, go ahead. Jason said, Battle Hymn of the Republic, all right? Any reason? It's in the, I think it is the brown. <laughs> all right, those are all good reasons. I, I like those all. So, Battle Hymn of the Republic, it is 569. 569 in the brown. You know you can't sing it sitting It is Ken's favorite. Yep. Thank you. 
Our scripture reading for this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 2. And that'll be verses 13 through 23. Matthew 2, 13 through 23. <clears throat> When you come to that, please stand with us. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious, and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under, in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and refusing to be comforted, because they are no more. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he will be called a Nazarene. Father in heaven, may you add your blessing to this reading to the hearts that it has been fallen upon. May they be blessed and look to you in all things. In the name of Christ we ask. Amen. Will you take your brown hymnal again and turn to number 279? 279 in the brown. Thank you. 
Our scripture text this morning is Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 and following. Last Lord's Day we considered the bloodbath at Bethlehem. When Herod, out of rage for being outwitted by the Magi, and with murder in his heart towards innocent Jesus, whom he considered a rival to his throne, he sent his soldiers into Bethlehem to kill all the toddlers two years old and younger. But Jesus was not there. Joseph had been warned in a dream to flee to Egypt with Mary and her son in the night before Herod's dragnet dropped on the citizens of Bethlehem. Joseph was not a man to hesitate once he knew what God commanded him to do. And that's characteristic of his life. And it's commendable. God said it, I'm doing it and going. And and he's, you know, he's on the road and moving when others are sitting there going like this and contemplating, gee, what should I do? He's got it done already. He remained in Egypt until God informed him that Herod was dead and no longer a threat to his family. And because Herod's son, Archelaus, ruled in Judea, Joseph settled in Galilee in the little town of Nazareth. That's how he got to Nazareth. We drew out four lessons. Number one, there is an urgency in God's commands that demand immediate obedience without delay. We need to learn that lesson. Number two, historical events obscure to men or prophecies by God are nonetheless a fulfillment of God's will. Number three, Evil men, like Herod, have all their deeds documented by God, proving his oversight and just judgment to come with regard to their lives and their responsibilities and their failures to repent and to come to Christ. Now in today's lesson, we're going to look at God's sovereignty in an evil world, because we're seeing a lot of evil in these studies with regard to Herod in particular and and his uh, intent to kill the Christ child and thus secure his own throne. Let us pray and ask for the Lord's enablement. Our Father, thank you for your word and Thank you for the fact that you are sovereign. Men make their plans. They do. They think that they are omnipotent when they are not. You rule and overrule in the affairs of men. And we ought to learn that that's true of us as well. We make our plans. Sometimes we don't pray about them. We just do them. And we find out in time, that God was not in favor of what we planned to do. 
So we need to learn to be more cautious, more uh, open to the will of God as he makes his will known in the word of God. The word is timeless. It is timeless. What you prophesied, what you teach, the principles, they are eternal. And we thank you for that. Rachel, bless us with our study today. In Christ's name, amen. Well, in these last few weeks, we've been looking at a lot of evil that happened during the days of Christ's birth and Herod's rule. This Herod is Herod the Great. He was put in power by Caesar Augustus. And he was a figurehead, a king. That is to say, Caesar snapped his fingers and Herod, yes, sir, yes, sir. And that's the way he operated. But he was supported by Caesar of Rome. And so he did have a lot of power uh, in terms of what he could or could not do with those despicable little people called the Jews down there. And that Rome did not like them because the Jews were in your face, face with regard to their faith. You were not going to tell them that they had to abandon their faith and certain practices just because you wore a crown on your head. Rome needed to learn that. All of us need to learn that with regard to our own faith. We trust God to be the one who is the boss in our lives, not the governments of the world. So we're looking today at God's sovereignty in an evil world. First thing I would say is that there is such a thing as evil in the world. There are people that don't believe this. But it's almost unconscionable that they would believe such a thing. Satan has a kingdom just as God has a kingdom. Jesus said, his words, not mine, I will not speak with you much longer. He's talking to his disciples. I will not speak with you much longer, for the prince of this world is coming, and he has no hold on me. John 14, verse 30. John says, We know that we are children of God and that this whole world is under the control of the evil one. 1 John 5, verse 19. We would not have a difficult time understanding that our world, subject to God's curse on Adam and Eve, is a judgment for sin. So we should expect that our world is going to be sinful. The day Adam and Eve disobeyed God in Eden is the day paradise was transformed into thorns and thistles and arduous labor and sickness and disease and death and every evil thought and every evil deed evident among the nations. That happened. They sided, the nations sided with the evil 
and evil is present because of sin, and it will remain until Satan and sin are finally destroyed. Creation groans under this curse from God. Romans 8, verse 18 and follow. We groan under this curse. Evil continues its work under this curse. Evil men aspire to power and wealth and often continue in their scheming, their deceit, even murder, as with Herod. With seemingly no abatement of the evil they propose to do. If God is sovereign, where is his control over the consequences of men's evil plans and actions? Why is God silent? Or to ask it another way, is God silent? That's a better question. Does God not care that the innocent like the toddlers of Bethlehem, were slaughtered to satisfy the jealousy and hatred of an evil monarch whose history left a bloody trail throughout his entire family. And we looked at all the people in his family, including his wife, his his own children. He had them killed. Worse, does God not care what happens to his people at the hands of evil men? Worse still, maybe God cannot do anything to stop the evil. Is he powerless? Is Satan an equal in strategy and power? Certainly the evil one wants us to think those thoughts. There is no better way to bring discouragement and fear and anguish and doubts into our lives than to question the goodness and the power of God. The slaughter of the toddlers in Bethlehem is one of those occasions which causes us to question the sovereignty of God the rise of men like Nero and Hitler and Mussolini and Stalin and Assad and countless others all make us wonder about God's sovereignty. Maybe we do not question that God is sovereign, but we may question how his sovereignty is applied in an evil world. In other words, why doesn't God do more to quell the advances of evil men and their purposes? So, we do not question that God can frustrate and defeat evil men and their schemes, but we question why he does not intervene and do it. There's our dilemma. We think we are more righteous than God. 
that he should take some lessons from us. For that reason, let's look at some evidence of God's sovereignty over an evil world. Firstly, we should realize that all leaders, including evil leaders, are put in power by God. There's your starting point. This is the premise for Paul's charge. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authority, I'm still reading, the authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has initiated instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Romans 13, verse 1, verse 2. I want you to notice that there are no qualifiers in this statement. Paul does not say, the authorities that exist have been established by God except for the Hitlers, the Herods, the Napoleons, and so on. No, all authority figures, including the evil ones, the brutal, the bloody, the murderers, all of them are established by God. Notice also that the text does not say that God makes these men evil, but rather that God establishes them. The Greek is the Greek word tasso, and it means to appoint or ordain. So this means that they are evil (laughs) by nature and evil by practice already. God simply enables them to be in a position of leadership. Daniel put it this way, because it's been going on since creation. Here's what Daniel writes. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. Daniel 2 Verse 20 and following. Well, I mean, if such are evil, what he's saying is that God uses these evil men to accomplish his purposes. And we'll look at that a bit later. The general rule is given in verse 3. For rulers, this is Paul writing, Rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what's right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, 
be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. In other words, he has the rule of capital punishment. He has the rule of execution for evildoers. He goes on. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Romans 13, verse 3 and verse 4. Now, brethren, a ruler does not have to be a believer to enact justice. He or she just has to possess a conscience instructed in right and wrong. And Paul says of the Gentiles, so they're not believers, right? He says this, they show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts, their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts now accusing, now even defending them. Romans 2, verse 15. Our study in Genesis proved this to be the case with King Abimelech, who possessed such a conscience. When he took Sarah into his harem, it was because Abraham had lied to him, saying that she was his sister. So when God said to him, to Abimelech, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Genesis 20, verse 3. Abimelech's defense was, Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she is my sister? And didn't she also say, he is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and with clean hands. Genesis 20, verse 4 and 5. Now on this occasion, did God call Abimelech a liar? No, he did not. Instead, God said to Abimelech, Yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me, and that is why I did not let you touch her. End quote. So what I want you to see here, brethren, is that the pagan king, Abimelech, had a conscience against committing adultery. And the implication is that he would never have conscripted Sarah into his harem had he known that she was already a married woman. And God confirmed, yes, I know that you did this with a clear conscience. So there's evil in the world that is permitted. God knows about it. 
But secondly, God controls the evil actions of rulers by humbling their pride. Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Babylonian Empire. He was very proud of his accomplishments. He said, here's here's his words, Is not this the great Babylon that I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? And the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times, that is seven years, will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone that he wishes. And immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Daniel 4, verse 30 and following. This humiliation broke his pride. But it took seven long years to happen. After which Nebuchadnezzar extolled God, saying, here's his confession. At the end of that time, seven years, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored, and then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth, and no one can hold back his hand or say to him, What have you done? Daniel 4, verse 34 and 35. And in verse 37 it reads, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. We read that, and we become nostalgic, and we think, wow, this is wonderful. Nebuchadnezzar has become a believer in God. He's a changed man. But was he a changed man? Or simply a man who has had the wind knocked out of him because of his inordinate pride? 
God uses evil men to discipline his wayward people. That's the third truth. Different date, different time, same Nebuchadnezzar. But this time the nation of Israel defied God and turned to idols. They had abandoned the worship of God and engaged in every conceivable kind of sin. And they liked their sin and they had no intention of repenting. 2 Kings 25, verse 1 and following says, In the ninth year of Zedekiah's reign, on the tenth day of the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Jerusalem with his whole army. He encamped outside the city, and he built siege works all around it. The city was kept under siege, until the eleventh year of King Zedekiah. So, King Zedekiah assumed the throne in the ninth year. Now we're told that Nebuchadnezzar ruled from the ninth year to the eleventh year, so that's two years. By the ninth day, at the fourth month, the famine of the city had become so severe, there was no food for the people to eat. 2 Kings 25, verses 1 and following. And verse 8 says, In the nineteenth year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, commander of the imperial guard, an official of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. He set fire to the temple of the Lord, the royal palace, and all the houses of Jerusalem. Every important building he burned down. The whole Babylonian army, under the commander of the imperial guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Nebuzaradan, the commander of the guard, carried into exile the people who remained in the city, along with the rest of the populace and those who had gone over to the king of Babylon. But the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land, to work the vineyards, to work the fields. The Babylonians broke up the bronze pillars, the movable stands, the bronze sea that were at the temple of the Lord, and they carried the bronze to Babylon. They also took away the pots, the shovels, the wicks, the trimmers, the dishes, and all the bronze articles used in the temple service. The commander of the imperial guard took away the censers and sprinkling bowls, all that were made of pure gold or silver, the bronze from the two pillars, the sea, and the movable stands which Solomon had made for the temple of the Lord was more than they could be ever weighed. Second Kings 25, verse 8 and following. So Babylon humbled Israel. Assyria was another nation that God used to punish Israel for its idolatry. We read the king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Halah, in Gosen, 
on the Habor River and in the towns of the Medes. Second Kings 18, verse 11. Evil men to dis- discipline are used to discipline the wayward people of God. You think that might be happening in America? I do. We were a Christian nation founded upon Christian principles. The pilgrims that came from England and others that were brought over. Christianity was established in our country and was for many, many years the light of the world. What about now? We need to understand that God uses evil men to accomplish his good and perfect will. Joseph, for example, was in a bad way with his brothers. They were jealous of him because Jacob, their father, favored Joseph over all the other brothers. So these evil brothers conspired to sell Joseph to the Midianite traders heading to Egypt and to convince Jacob, their father, to give up all allegiance to Joseph, they feigned Joseph's death by killing a goat and staining Joseph's garment with the blood of that goat in years past, years, with Joseph being accused by another evil person, Potiphar, Potiphar's wife. He was imprisoned for years in Pharaoh's dungeon for an alleged rape attempt that never happened. But there he sat. Eventually, Joseph's righteousness was vindicated and he was freed from prison by Pharaoh, and not only so, but elevated to the position of vice-regent, the bull of Egypt. The severe famine in Palestine resulted in Joseph's brothers having to resort to Egypt for food, for subsistence, and they end up having to stand before none other than their long-lost and assumed dead brother, Joseph, who described their wicked conduct in these words, You intended to harm me, says Joseph. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Genesis 50, verse 20. Brethren, in a far grander sense, Luke records Peter's sermon at Pentecost when he referred to Jesus' crucifixion. Peter said this, This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, 
with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Acts 2, verse 23. And two chapters later, Luke records the believer's prayer. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. And now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants who speak your word with great boldness. Acts 4, 27 and following. Brethren, God does not make men evil. But he uses evil men to accomplish his will. Because they act willingly. Because they act without coercion. Because they act solely with their own evil motives. They are held accountable for their conduct. And it is a sad commentary that there is no shortage of supply of evil men. They are everywhere. Yet God, that's my point, is still in control. So that brings up the question, how are we to act when evil men seem to prosper? It's always been a question that believers ask. Psalm 37 tells us, submit to God and find your contentment in Him. Look at verse 1, Psalm 37. Do not fret because of evil men or be envious of those who do wrong. Verse 7. Verse 8 expands the thought. Be still before the Lord. Wait patiently on Him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. What does it mean to fret? Well, the Hebrew word means to burn. A good understanding would be the word seethe. The idea is that it's a slow burn. The kind of anger that lies under the skin and it just, uh, it, it smolders and it fumes until bitterness and resentment take over. that such would be the result of evil men getting their way demonstrates a lack of faith that God knows what he's doing. There may even be a bit of envy that the wicked get to experience the pleasures of sin and they seem to get away with that. While we are held to the discipline and the chastening of the Lord to keep us on a holy path. 
The Bible indicates that most anger is sinful and that we can control it. Anger shows that we are not in submission to the will of God. We do fret when circumstances do not go our way. And with that said, the secret and sinful thought is that we think we kind of could do maybe a, a better job of managing evil men than God. There is a thing called righteous anger. How do we know the difference? Well, if I am angry because I witness an injustice towards others, it may indicate a righteous anger. And the proof will be that we try to help the victims of such. Jesus put it this way, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Matthew 5, verse 9. But if I am angry about injustice done to me, it's likely sinful anger because we believe that we deserve better as the people of God. But Jesus taught, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Matthew 5, verse 11. But we do not see any blessing in it at all. We think well of ourselves and claim exemption from such persecution. And behind all these things that we know, we believe that God controls all of this, but we are not submissive to his control. We think God has missed the mark to allow evil men to prosper at the expense of his people's pain and anger. So, we submit to God, but we're not always happy submitting (laughs) to God's providence and what he has for us. Secretly, we believe, Lord, we deserve better. In more sane moments, we delight in God's sovereign control and we take our rest in his security. Again, Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will do this. He will make your righteousness Shine like the dawn, the justice of your cause, like the noonday sun. Psalm 37, verses 4 through 6.
Most people do not take adversity very well. We don't take it lying down. In one way or another, we are scrappers. We have been taught by well-meaning friends and relatives not to allow people to walk all over you. That's what they tell us. And if our cause is just, we believe we should speak up. We should protest false accusations. We must set the record straight. We should not be a doormat. This is the American way. But it's not necessarily God's way. What is God's way? Psalm 37, verse 7 and following. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when men succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger. Turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land, enjoy great peace. The wicked plot against the righteous, they gnash their teeth at them. But the Lord laughs at the wicked. For he knows their day is coming. Wow. Psalm 37, verse 7 and following. You know what this is? This is a call to be patient and to be meek. Psalm 37, verse 11 says, The meek will inherit the land and enjoy Great peace. Compare that to Matthew 5, verse 5. What does it mean to be meek? M-double-E-K. Meek. What does it mean to be meek? Well, meekness is the realization that apart from God's grace, we are weak and sinful. And so we acknowledge that apart from God, there can be no victory against the evil that men plot and do. It also means that we understand 
that if Christ were not our Savior, if he had not been merciful towards us, our behavior would be just, <coughs> just as wicked as the people who wish to do us harm. So we're to delight in God's continual rest and care over us. And it's not a question of getting even or putting up and fighting back. And that's the third point. When evil men prosper, we need to acquiesce to God's sovereignty by continuing to do what's right. One of the main goals of Satan in temptation and adversity is to get you and me to become discouraged. To get us to disown Jesus, to deny the faith, and opt for self-pity and self-preservation. And if Satan is successful, he will we will become stingy and self-centered and full of covetousness, unhappy with God, with life, and with our circumstances. And we reason, if this is the way God treats his children, why should I bother to live for him and obey his precepts? By the way, we see this in this psalm, Psalm 73. His lament is in that psalm. This is what he's speaking now, the author, Asaph. This is what the wicked are like, he says. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. What's he saying? He's saying, I've lived a righteous and innocent life in vain. What has it gotten me? All day long I have been plagued. I have been Punished every morning. When I tried to understand all this, it was oppressive to me. Psalm 73, verse 12. Well, if this is you this morning, you need to acquiesce to God's sovereignty by continuing to do right. Three things are borne out by the psalmist. That should be our conduct in light of this. We do right by being content with what we have and generous to a fault. Psalm 37, verse 21. The wicked borrow and they don't repay it. Oh, okay. But the righteous give generously. I was young and now I'm an old man. 
but I have never seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging bread. They're always generous, I'm reading. And they lend freely. Their children will be blessed. You can't claim that you are trusting in God's provision for you and your family while keeping a tight-fisted handhold on your wallet. But we give generously like God gives to us. Number two, we continue to do right will also mean that you guard your lips. Psalm 27 again, verse 30, this time, the mouth of the righteous man utters wisdom. His tongue speaks what's just. The law of his God is in his heart. His feet do not slip. For the feet are made for walking, for mobility. All men are traveling on one path or another. But for the person who trusts God, his confession is, I have kept my feet from every evil path so that I might obey your word. And your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. Psalm 119, verse 10 and following. Thirdly, we're to continue to do right means that your actions will magnify all that is good in God. Again, Psalm 37, verse 27 says, Turn from evil and do good, for the Lord loves the just and will not forsake his faithful. Any talk about believing in God's sovereignty, which makes us stingy or covetousness in heart, abusive in speech, disobedient in actions, any talk like that is bogus. So let us truly trust in the sovereignty of God. Note verse 11. All the way through Psalm 37, there is a reoccurring assurance from God. It first occurs in verse 9. Evil men will be cut off, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. The phrase is repeated again and again in this psalm. Verse 11, verse 22, verse 29, verse 34. It's there, folks. It's there. Five times in all. What does it mean? David is assuring the righteous that God's sovereignty over our lives is such that the wicked, as numerous and strong as they are, will not be able to displace the righteousness from God's promise land, God's promise measures for our lives. Paul puts the scenario this way. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? 
about hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long and we are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, verse 35 and following. If you're discouraged, if you're a bit distraught because of life in America, the things our country are facing, and you're looking for righteous leaders and you can't find them, Read this text in Romans 8. Nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Nothing. And we need to take this to heart. That God has his hand upon his people. is watching over us and caring for us. Yes, we're living in wicked times. But that also is prophesied. It's like, well, duh. The word of God is coming true. And we're living in that age. We're living in that time. Which ought to encourage our faith. Because prophecy is being fulfilled, true when it was said, true now that is being fulfilled and acted out. Ah, that means God's word is being accomplished according to the plan of God Almighty. He hasn't forgotten us. He hasn't forgotten his plan. He's working his plan. And we just happen to be alive in the day and age in which things are coming to collation. Coming to completion. I think it's an exciting time to be a Christian. To be able to see God in action. What he's doing. Our Lord, we thank you for your word and pray that we'll get our heads screwed on right it will not be fearful that we will in fact be full of faith I think of the disciples way back in time in the days of Jesus thousands of years back They didn't see the fruition. They heard the prophecies. 
They trusted God's sovereignty to bring them about, but they didn't get to see them. The writer of Hebrews tells us that. He tells us that we get to see what they didn't see. That they were made to wait so that along with us, together, we can rejoice in the things of God being fulfilled. That's really remarkable when you think about it, that they've been waiting for centuries to see what we're seeing in our day and what we are experiencing. I thank you for that, Lord, and I pray you'll bless us with the truth of that, of these things so that we're not discouraged, that we are in hard, hardened and encouraged to trust our God. Christ's name. Amen. From the Brown Hymnal, number 410. great hymn, it goes along with the sermon, My Faith Looks Up to Thee. Will you stand with me when you find 410?
Amen. We'll take a 10-minute break and regather when you hear the music for our communion service. 10-minute break. Thank you. 